morning, Jan. How are you this morning? Good morning, David. I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm pumped, excited. I hate that word, pumped. That. I don't know why I used it. But actually, Jan, I've got a matter of life and death to discuss. <gasps> now, really, you're going to have to help me out on this one. Melbourne should all be helping, actually, in this endeavour. I'm actually speaking about this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival... And I have as my guest, Marik Hardy. So, Marik, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. I'm pumped to be here. <laughs> now that I've started using that word, I'm going to regret it. I'm, I apologise. You pump up a bicycle tyre. It's, uh, it's terrible. That's, I'm full of air to be here today. Thank you very much. I'm inflated to be here today. Uh, uh, well, I hope this interview then won't be deflating. Yeah. But, director, yes. Melbourne Writers' Festival. Yes. First time. Isn't it? Yes. Daunting? No. Okay, we've got no, the end. No, uh, daunting. No, I think that the, I started the job in November last year and the festival opens uh, in a week. Ah, the um, dates? The August 24th that opens to through to September 2nd, so 380 events in 10 days. So I'm tired more than You're I am tired. daunted. But I, taking on the position, I mean, the scope of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's big. I'd co-curated and co-produced Women of Letters for seven years, which of course is a different beast altogether, but that was Michaela Maguire and I basically two-handed running nearly 30 events a year, which of course is very <laughs> different to 380 in 10 days. But um, I think the hardest thing for me was I haven't had a an office job for 21 years. I had to have a lanyard. I had to eat nori rolls at my desk. I was like, well, I, don't, I don't care for this at all. Um, and also learning arts management speak is not, I mean, I come from a live art performance background. The last few years I've been making theatre and live art anonymously, which has been really nice. I think having grown up in a very public way in the Australian media on the book show and writing, a few years ago I thought, well, I just want to make things without my name on them because people have an expectation of who you are and what you do. And I got the Sydney Meyer Fellowship to support that. So that's been great, but I didn't have to learn what a KPI was. <laughs> now I know. 42 years of my life without knowing what a KPI was. Well, was I any the worst? No. They're invidious things, those Ugh. KPIs. Uh, well, I know what they stand for, but I don't actually well, we, quite understand we, we what they do. We might ask you later on, oh, if okay. we get time, Great. how one assesses or evaluates a festival. But before we do, yes. let's find out what the festival's about. Yes. Now, as you say, uh, you've been anonymous, but now your name is associated yes. with the position. You've come up with the, the title, A Matter of Life and Death, and you've also added a sort of uh, line in the in the little blurb, you're trying to provide a light and deliberate art kook tilt. Yes. What does that mean? Well, I think the Melbourne Writers Festival is very ready for a light and deliberate art kook tilt. Um, well, I feel that, you know, the Wheeler Centre is a really formidable, beautiful institution in Melbourne and Michael Williams, who runs the Wheeler Centre, is a very dear friend of mine. And I feel like they provide very strong talks programming year round and I thought think the Melbourne Writers Festival had to start making a, a step away from using the same sort of programming because it was looking like for those 10 days of the festival what did it represent that was different to what the Wheeler Centre was doing and when I applied for the job I said I don't want to make a conventional writers festival I come from a kooky art background and I want to bring some art kook to the festival and uh, to their detriment they agreed and uh, here we are. So for me, Art Kook, what does that mean? I mean, it, it's bringing a bit of immersive theatre 
to the Writers' Festival, it's certainly using non-traditional ways to engage the writers. So it's not just two chairs and a microphone and someone from Radio National saying, tell us about your book, Brian. <laughs> it's, you know, we've got writers writing a eulogy to their career and reading them aloud. So Yasmin Abdel-Majid, Yumi Stimes and Limo from Joe and Limo will be writing and reading these pieces aloud. People writing eulogies to their childhood. There's a, an, a funeral parlour at Acme where people can write a love letter to loss and fold it into origami. So that's what I mean by art cook. That's what you mean by art cook. Yeah. Well, reflected in how the program's broken down. Mm. You've got all sorts of categories if you look through um, the catalogue sort of thing, the performance, performance duets. Here's one for us. Animal Church. Oh, yeah. Talk about art kook. <laughs> I love the Animal Church. Yeah, we're building an Animal Church this year. So for me, that was, you know, I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an animal lover. I'm a dog lover. I lost my dog a few years ago. And I do think there's, when people lose pets, there's a death of an animal there's not really a lot of space to sit and reflect. You sort of, you know, it was like it was just a dog, it was just a cat, it was you just expected to sort of get on with your life a bit. And I, I'm, for a few years I've wanted to make a space where people could come and sit and reflect and bring a little token, like a little photo of their animal or a little chewed up tennis ball and over the course of a week it would build to this space, like the, the pet cemetery in Paris. And then I thought, well, let's run a festival now, let's build a bloody animal church. So we're building it and it's five days of animal-related talks programming. But and it, we've got J.M. Kutsay and Raymond Gator is doing a lecture. We've got Adam Liao is speaking to the girls who run Smith & Daughters about eating animals. We've got a pet remembrance ceremony, which is run by an actual pet celebrant who runs pet funerals called Pause and Reflect is her service. <laughs> but but Andy, Andy Griffiths is doing a reading in the pet remembrance ceremony. So all the writers are being involved in this, even for the – we're doing a session on the love of dog and Tony Birch and First Dog on the Moon, um, Ali Cobby Eckerman are all doing readings readings about dogs. So it's writers doing things they don't normally do. Yeah, I, I noticed, you know, Raymond Gator, it, it oh. sort of philosophy. Yes, um, in the animal church. In the animal church. Be and still it, my beating heart. <laughs> it's mm. extraordinary. Mm. Um, staged performances, yes. I noticed. And you've got one called the Aspie Hour, which fascinated me. Yeah, the Aspie Hour was something that um, we saw earlier in the year. I mean, these are all performances. I wanted to bring some theatre and performance into the festival program. But the connection to writing to me, so you can go and see, you know, at Fed Square, you go see Michelle de Kretzer in conversation or Bob Carr and Barry Jones. And then maybe you go out and see a one-hour theatre performance. So we've got a whole collection of Maxine Beniba Clark is doing a performance. Randy, the puppet, is doing a theatre performance. The Aspie Hour is a musical theatre show by two performers who have Asperger's who are on the spectrum and they wanted to do a musical theatre show about it. So it's a one hour thing but with all the theatre performances later in that day you can go and see the performers speaking about their writing process in a Q&A. So there's always the connection to writing and the writing process. I mean they're theatre makers, there's a songwriting stream, you can hear the songwriters talking about writing. We're all using words in different ways. So it's a celebration of words and maybe moving it away from that more traditional, it's about books and authors, it's about words and writing. Well has therefore uh, books evolved or developed in terms of how we look at words and things like that? I think, I mean, online is changing how we look at words. I think Twitter is a really interesting example of that. I know that you're not much of a Twitter man yourself. <laughs> no. But I find it really, as a writer and connecting with other writers, I've always found it really interesting that 140 characters, to me, is like the Hemingway um, six-word story, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Twitter is a different example of how writers can use brevity to express something funny or political or warm or passionate, I really enjoy engaging with it for that. And I think that changes language as well and how we use it and how people 
I mean, let's not bring his name up in this sacred, sacred 3CR space, but the leader of the um, United <laughs> States is using that platform and creating news content by using that platform. But is it worthy? No, it's terrible. He's a monster. <laughs> As in, not just that individual who will remain nameless, but, you know, using Twitter as a forum for discourse or communication in a, on a deeper level. It doesn't necessarily engage on a deeper level. What I like about it is the playfulness with language. And again, I grew up reading Bill Bryson taught me a lot about crafting a joke because he makes it look so simple. But, you know, the more books he's written, he just loves language and loves words. And I look back at the way he structured jokes in his early work. It, the cadence of his, the rhythm of his jokes is so carefully placed. And I see a lot of that on Twitter as well. I see people going, I've got this much space. How do I want the rhythm of this political statement to work? And as someone who loves language, I really enjoy seeing what people do there. But certain individuals who will remain nameless don't have any rhythm, but we'll get no, off that one. No, we'll no. get off that one. Workshops is another category yes. you've got there. Yeah. Um, Getting people involved directly? Well, always. I mean, Melbourne Writers' Festival has had a tradition of workshops. People do love to, I mean, you know, Writers' Festival audiences do love to get their hands dirty to a degree. And there's zine-making workshops. There's workshops. Ryan Griffin, who um, uh, is the creator of Clever Man, the TV series about the Indigenous superhero, which is an amazing TV series. I think that what I have intended with this festival, and maybe that goes back to the theme, which we didn't really go into, is human experience and writers who make work or artists who make work want to be seen and understood as much as the rest of us writers festival audiences who go want to we make connections with works we make connections with books we see ourselves reflected back or a part of our life reflected back and I really love that kind of intellectual hand-holding between an artist who has written something that they need either for catharsis or just as part of their practice to express and the person in the audience who says I feel very seen by that work or I see you. Like, that's a really beautiful, safe human space. And that's what I'm kind of really interested in making in the festival. Well, a safe space to discuss matters of life, mm. of death. And it yeah. doesn't have to be morbid. It's in fact... No. It's a very broad umbrella, the theme. I mean, I, I really like talking about death because the more I realise how impermanent it all is, the more sort of precious and beautiful. It's not to sound super whimsical or earnest about it, but, you know, we're all going to die. It's a, it's, a, it's a crazy short ride. It's a brutally short ride for some people. And to me, the theme is about a celebration of life and survival and joy and impermanence as much as it is about looking at mortality and different aspects of it. And we really, the program does cover, I mean, Ben Quilty's in conversation with Marwa Al-Sabuni, who's a Syrian architect who remained to rebuild Syria. So I feel like it's not a glib representation of life and death. It's a real look at it. But words, books, novels, stories are a way of making that ride more enjoyable, more engaging, more creative. Yeah, and I guess what I like to look at in this program is what we all reach for to survive in certain moments. And many of us, I would say probably everyone sitting in this room, reaches for books often. We reach for words to help us through, to guide us through painful situations or challenging situations. So, you know, we're all... Yep, some, some of us reach for wine or yogurt. It depends, different things at different times. But I love whatever you need to reach for to survive in that particular moment is, is the thing that you should be reaching for. I really celebrate that in people. Okay, getting on to numbers there. Oh, you've been okay. Maths is not my strong point, yeah, but let's do it. Maths is not your strong point. But you've been uh, waxing lyrical about the uh, guests and the items. 
you seem to have it all in your head. How oh, many? How many people? Told you I was tired. <laughs> it's 300, 380 events in ten days and over five hundred artists, and that's that's what wakes me up at three o'clock every morning. I'm hoping that that's going to stop on September third, but I don't know yet because this is my first festival. But I do wake up going, oh, that event. That person needs to make sure that they're, you know, that they speak first in that event, and they they told me that they're a little bit nervous about that. So I want to make, and you have to like, I want them all to feel they're all showing up. They're all putting their hearts on the line. You got to look after them. But how do you deal with that? How do you manage? Well, I, the thing that I haven't come to terms with is that I don't get to see every event. I still have not quite accepted that all these little babies that I've birthed with my big, dumb, stupid, bleeding heart. I don't get to sit in the back and watch them all flower. I don't. I. I. I haven't. As you can hear, I'm in some denial about it. I think, well, this is, you know, these are all precious events, and I should be able to see them. So yeah, there's. I don't know how you manage that. You know, I've got a great team. That really helps. It's a tiny team, but getting that attention to detail so that all the artists feel respected and heard and, and seen and absolutely yeah. acknowledged for showing up. Um, all right, KPIs yeah. then. <laughs> What what are the KPIs for a oh, festival? Right. Because there'd be so many different opinions, ideas, guests coming in, the audiences would all be taking away something different. Yeah. Well, I guess the board the board want it want it to be going in this direction. The board are really excited about changing it to a kind of a book party, as it were. That's what we want it to be, a 10-day, like a festive festival. So they're really happy with this direction. Well, it's bookended, shall it I say, book It is. Life and death. We've got the opening night, at, <laughs> opening and closing both at Melbourne Museum and opening is life, joy, celebration and closing is love, loss and letting go. So, yeah, I mean, what is it? What's a KPI? <laughs> I don't know. People are buying tickets. That's a good sign. So everyone's excited about that. For me, the satisfaction would be feeling like the artists felt held and looked after. And that is hard on such a large scale with so many events. Um, and I, for the audiences to step maybe a little bit outside of their comfort zone and know that there's all the traditional aspects of the festival that were there, the in-conversations with Irvine Welsh or Michelle de Kretzer or all those things that are more traditional panels – but then outside of that, there's, you know, you can go to the animal church. You can go get a literary tattoo is a something liter- that we're offering. A literary tattoo? Yep. Speak to me more about That's, this. That's um, Leslie Rice, who's um, an artist who won the Doug Moran Portrait Prize twice. He also runs a tattoo parlour in Sydney and he's going to come down for both weekends of the festival at the Mission to Seafarers and people can book in and get a literary tattoo. His dad, Les Rice's dad tattooed Tom Waits. He's, he's tattoo royalty. So I just, yeah, you know, I've got a lot of tattoos, so I'm just bringing the tattoo. There you go. You talk about art kook. But how do, you, how do you get Hamlet written on? Uh, well, you have to go small. A lot of people want tattoos. You know, you got to like, I'm, I'm thinking like the Vonnegut, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. You know, something, something simple. All right. A question you can't answer. Oh, okay. Who's your favourite guest? Because no, I can't answer because they're all they're all my babies. Um, I am excited about bringing some people to Australia who might not be on everyone's radar. You know, everyone gets. I mean, Tanahasi Coates is a great guest. Everyone's very excited about Ronan Farrow, who we're bringing out. Like, there's some really big, sexy names that are coming out. There's a Canadian humorist and graphic artist called Johnny Sun, who is very little known, but he's just co-written a book with Lin Manuel Miranda, and his graphic novel. Um, everyone's an alien when you're an alien too and is is gorgeous and strange and I'm really excited about bringing him out to Australia for the first time. Now, look, I've got one uh, little thing that I noticed which I thought was just wonderful. 
Everybody likes to be listened to and Scribe. Yes. Scribe is, has got, uh, you can have a face-to-face session with a scribe who listens, converses and records the experience in writing. Now, just tell me, what is the question going to be? Because I think this is the funniest way to get feedback. Well, the scribe artists are going to be roving throughout the festival and placed in different venues. And, I mean, they're a cast, they do this a lot. They will speak to people about their experience with the session, with the event and how they feel about it and anything that came up. So it's sort of like your own personal writing therapist at the end of a session. No, this is getting feedback. Nobody wants to fill in those forms and you're doing it through <laughs> Oh, no, we've got we've way. got the forms as well. Don't worry about but that. But you could go back to the days when scribes were so necessary to record people or help them document their lives. Yeah. Well, I just think this is a really nice... I've, I've done the Scribe Project before at a different festival and being able to sit down with someone and you talk to them about their experience and watching them translate that into words is a real gift as well. So, yeah, we do have... It's not a sneaky way of getting feedback. It's just a kind of a lovely... <laughs> I think a hopefully a lovely experience a, for a lot of the a audiences. A sketch artist in, in words. Yeah. Yeah, oh. exactly. Marie, it's been a delight talking Thank to you. Thank you. We, we couldn't possibly cover everything. No, then in you'd there. be staying awake at three a.m. like let's, me. Let's give the listener another uh, reminder: the okay. dates of the festival. Uh, it begins next Friday, August twenty-fourth, and goes through to September second. And there's so much choice. How do they get tickets? Uh, MWF.com.au. It, it's so easy. <laughs> I'm a team oh, player. Awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. And. Uh, we invite listeners to send in appropriate KPIs. Oh, God, That's stop saying like... KPI. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it has you pumped, <laughs> Jan. Right, thank you very much. Well, going quite differently now to um, uh, Chair Chitze. And most Australians would know what it means to have a chip on your shoulder. Ken isn't Australian, the title from this book, but his resentment carries this book. Now, Chair, who is Ken? Um, Ken, Ken um, is from Shanghai, China. This yeah, this novel is set in the nineteen nineties. So he came over. He, he was he was an um, an engineer, an engineer from the ammunition factory in in, in China, and uh, he, he comes over to Australia to to find. Uh, he, Find a new life. So this was his quest. His quest. His quest, like many migrants, is to get established, get get wealthy, and and have status. Now, what kind of uh, visa is he travelling on, though, to Australia? <laughs> yes, um, he was in the hope of um, being employed as an engineer. In, but at that time, his qualification wasn't recognised by the government. And uh, so Plan B, he um, he was going to come over as um, on a working holiday visa, but he, he was too old. But Ken, being Ken, he would not give up. He pleaded with his cousin in Hong Kong, who is ten years younger or so, and came on a fake passport. And of course, the other thing that uh, to get one of these visas, you could be married but not have children. So yeah, just. Tell us a little bit about what Ken is leaving behind in Shanghai. Ken left behind his daughter, who is um, who's got serious illness, and and a young son and an eighty-year-old mother, yeah. and uh, who is holding the fort for him, and a brother brother in in his family. So, um, 
Ken read widely and knew a lot about Australia. He knew about the anti-Chinese gold rush history and the white Australian policy. But he didn't do very much research on just being employed as an engineer. <laughs> no, he, so, ac- he actually found out before he came. Mm. So he had to yeah, change so what, his plans before he came. So what yeah. kind of jobs did he get in Australia? Oh, he, he, picked, he picked grapes in Mildura. And, yeah. and but according to the working holiday visa, uh, you, you cannot be employed for more than three months in one place. So he and he's got tired of his back is hurting. So he, he so found found job as a foreman in in the um, security doors um, company. And he quite this is back in Melbourne, and he quite enjoyed doing this job because he'd go out on site to places like Turak, and uh, he'd. he'd amplified his cravings for the high life by going out and seeing these places. But he also was the boss of a young boy called Red. Yes. Um, he wasn't exactly 100% happy. He, he did not fit in in his workplace. So that, that, that comes a, a chance for, for me to bring out his, his inability to fit in, his pre-assumptions about Australia. He didn't like Red because Red was xenophobic and rape picked on on people on migrants and and blurbed and and, and continue and rented um, and Kang was just a foreman he was an engineer in in China he didn't fit in he didn't do small talks he he sort of yeah he, it was a really difficult until there was a turnaround with um, saving rates dog <laughs> with acupuncture. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he just happened to have his needles on him. No, 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 no. That was his habit that, you know, he, he, he learned from his uncle. Um, so that was his side hobby. So he just, yeah. But by saving the dog, a friendship grew between these two, uh, Red and Ken. And uh, even Ken sort of felt that he could do, he could do a better job with Red than Red's own stepfather was doing. And, you know, there was things about Red that he liked for mm. in a son. Yeah. Um, you see, it was with Red that all his pre-assumptions sort of peeled back. He began, he saw what Red's background was, fragmented childhood being passed from one stepfather to another, like like a recycled Christmas present. Mm. And his mother was a drug addict and so... He began to see uh, Aussies, uh, you know, his pre-assumption that Aussies are given all these benefits, blah, 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 social security, they have an easy life. It's not that simple. Of course, he never reflects on his own uh, family and what he's doing to his own family back in China. Oh. He just he just looks at Australia as has a flawed system. <laughs> and then even when Red um, decides to join the army, it gives Ken, Ken a great chance to voice his anti-war statements. That's right. Uh, King was in a state of denial. He had been lying and denying uh, all the time because... I think growing up in the Cultural Revolution period made him frightened. He was picked on, his friends were picked on, and this mistrust of the authority, this denial, you know, in in Shanghai he's done that. He's seconded himself out out of Shanghai to get away from his wife who was dying. So he had done that all his life. It's easy to look at someone else's flaw and, and not look at yours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
He decides, as he does, he always does this research, uh, Ken, and he decides to research homosexuality, not just the reading of, not to do it. Um, and he sort of reads about, you know, sort of how in Chinese history it was seen to be okay and then it wasn't. And uh, and then he sort of lies about what Confucius said anyway. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. Uh, that's where the tribal voice comes in very strongly. Before before the Muslims and the Christians came to China, emperors and the nobility had always, it was okay to have lovers, male lovers. Mm. It was part of the deal. And, and, but Ken grew up in an in a era where it was not all right to be a homosexual. And his son was showing propensity to become one. So that freaked him out. Uh, my son was thousands of kilometers away yet no control and he blamed his uh, dead wife on not giving his son some male traits <laughs> that, think, that, oh golly that, that's correct so, let's talk about his own sexual ability because you know this is the other thing he wanted to do in australia he wanted to fall in love or if not have a marriage of convenience that's right at first he was too proud to do so marriage of convenience only for the low lives Oh. But you know, but he, his character type, he's not going to fall in love. He's a dreamer. Oh, so <laughs> the invitation to his neighbour to come out to to a dance, and you know his expectation that she would pay, you know, <laughs> it was just terrible. So thankfully, he meets Julia. Who's she? Julia is his uh, communications teacher from Footscray Tave. And In fact, we, how about reading a little bit from uh, page 192? 192, sure. Okay, that's Julia. It was she who showed him good communication skills and made him realise his bullying ways, his ramming ideas down people's throats. Julia was the angel, showing him a scan of his heart, revealing the blotches of black and red in it. Ken leaned heavily against the door jam at the thought of many changes he had to make to become a hero. A hero, yes. <laughs> so, you know, look, Julia had a very interesting sex background. She knew all about the Kumsatra uh, from one of her past lovers, Patty, and... Uh, and he says he'll learn more sex positions if she loses weight, especially in her legs. <laughs> <laughs> she, but she does make him question his money equals, his money equals happiness equation. So she does make him look at that. And the question to the end of the book is, how could Julia help Ken gain permanency without her rescuing him? Ah. Yeah, there was this incident that Julia's ex-lover, who had disappeared 10 years ago, came back as a transgender woman. Mm. And she was hopeful uh, that, you know, uh, maybe he, she could arrange a, a marriage of convenience, which Gui Feng, the, uh, which it means imperial fragrance, uh, actually did offer, and but later found... Oh, found he, Yes, but we won't tell what happens to Ken Uh, and how he gets it. Look, there are a lot of Chinese proverbs through the book and the one quoted most often was the effort of nine buffaloes and two tigers. (laughs) And that's about the amount of effort I think it would take me to make Ken a character I could ever like. I didn't like him, Chert. I did not like your Ken. (laughs) It's 
satisfied, Jane. I purposefully made him quite mean to show the flaws. I think that the whole thrust of this book I wanted to show is that we have pre-assumptions, we have prejudices, our tribal voices are, are driving us to believe that the others, the others get it easy, the others have flaws, the others, we have to fear them. And therefore, I have gone in like a surgeon into Kang in, in, and show, show, show the readers what his prejudices are. And it's a big ask. I'm hoping that people would go forward, like Kang and Red, to have open, honest communication, to reflect on what has been told to them as children, spoken or unspoken, to a higher understanding and reach out across cultural boundaries for a better, harmonious, multicultural society. Well, there we have the thoughts and the book from uh, Chair Chizzi about Ken's Quest. It's a published by Three Kookaburras, which is quite a new uh, independent publishing house here in Australia. Well, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. David, well, can, can, I, can I just say one thing? Oh. Uh, there is a possibility of um, Kang's Quest being made into a, a play. Oh, really? Yeah, there, there are some interests being shown at, at this stage. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> and I had been talking with Marie Hardy about this year's Melbourne Writers Festival. So get out there and buy a ticket. <laughs> and that's it for Published or Not Today. So listen in next week. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.